Heavenly Father, please help us uh, by your spirit as we come to your holy word uh, this morning. Reveal to us yourself, your goodness, your grace, your holiness, and show us as your people how we are to live for you in light of the good news of Jesus. Uh, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, when I was in uh, primary school and uh, early high school, one of my hobbies was collecting trading cards, in particular cards from a Japanese uh, cartoon series called Pokemon. Uh, some of you might know Pokemon, some of you might not, uh, but every Saturday at uh, Chinese language school, uh, during morning tea, uh, my friends from different classes around uh, in the language school, we would gather together and we'd look at each other's cards and we'd trade cards. And there was a particular guy that I would trade cards with. And only much later on, long after trading these cards with him, I realized this guy uh, who was charming with me, who I called my friend, uh, who we would love looking at each other's cards, I realized that he'd been ripping me off. He'd be trading with me cheap cards, cheap and worthless cards, for all my good and valuable cards. I was ripped off. I was taken advantage of. I was exploited by someone I called my friend. And we're still friends today, actually. <laughs> While we continue this theme of opposition that we started last week uh, in Nehemiah, and we're going to continue that today. Last week we saw uh, the enemy from outside. Uh, if you look at chapter 4, Sand Ballot, this guy, his jeering and his threats. Uh, but this week, we're going to see the enemy from inside, from within. An enemy, a threat from inside the community of God's people. You see, the Jews, they were being ripped off too. But not by foreigners, not by offshore telemarketers, but by their own Jewish brothers, by their own friends, by their own people. And today's passage shows opposition in the way of injustice, exploitation, oppression, and taking advantage of their own people for their own gain. And it's a reminder this morning that Satan is at work. And his work isn't just from outside the walls and outside of God's people. He's also at work inside the walls too and inside the community of God's people. It's a sobering reminder that we still live today in a fallen world, that in this present age, we're still prone to sin, aren't we? And we're still prone to hurt our own brothers and sisters. I saw a stat this week. Uh, it said 60% of church plants fail, and they fail not because of external opposition and pressure, but because of enemies from the inside, people from the inside dividing, stirring, acting without love to others, and threatening the unity of God's people around Jesus, just like the song that we just sung before. And it's true, isn't it? Even your, in your experience, uh, in my time pastoring, that's just over six and a half years, it's gone by really fast. I've seen churches split, not because of external pressure, but mostly because of internal division. 
I've seen churches not split, but they continue, and they continue on with this toxic community and just putting all the issues under the rug. And I've seen churches weather through storms of internal division and unlovingness, this enemy from the inside. I'm sure you've seen this in your time too, the enemy inside the walls, the enemy within the community of God's people causing division, disunity, in various ways being unloving, ungodly, even attacking, exploiting and oppressing fellow followers of Jesus. We're going to see uh, this and what happens in Nehemiah 5, and we're going to have a think about what this means for us today in light of that one gospel of Jesus. So have your Bibles open. It starts like this in verse 1. Now there, were, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Uh, the term outcry, the great outcry, it means a significant emotional distress. And it's not this great outcry because the Matildas won last night or a great outcry because someone said an English word wrong last week. This great outcry in the Old Testament, uh, this word, this phrase, it's used to describe things like wars, gross injustice and oppression happening. And this great outcry, it comes from men and their wives amidst the strain of the war-building efforts, and it's against their own people. This great outcry against their own Jewish brothers, people in their own community. Verse 2 to 4 outlines three complaints. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's very obvious because they all start with the same word. Verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. See, this first complaint these were the people who were the poor and they didn't own any land and they just needed food. They needed food to keep themselves alive and their kids alive. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Tim told me to say mortgage wrong, like mortgage and vineyards just to annoy people. Uh, but the second complaint, uh, people who own land, uh, but they were so poor, these people, uh, and because of the famine, they had no harvest on their lands, and they had to mortgage their property to get grain. Verse 4, the third complaint, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Third complaint, these people, these guys saying this, uh, they had enough food, but they couldn't afford the king's annual tax. So they had to mortgage their property, take out a loan to pay the king's annual tax. But without help to get back, they were in danger of losing their property to the creditors, creditors who were their own Jewish brothers trying to earn a profit through the hardship of their fellow brothers and sisters. And you can kind of see through these complaints a lack of love, a lack of generosity, 
the rich and well-off Jews, the ones who had grain and land and they were self-sufficient, instead of coming down to sacrificially help uh, their kinsmen in need, instead they were profiteering off their hardships. And it was so serious and dire that we read in verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. You see, they were even having to force their kids out to be slaves, slaves to fellow Jews to pay off their loans with interest. Fellow Jews were profiteering off the hardships of their own people. You see, Jews were being oppressed. They were taken advantage of, exploited, they were treated unjustly without love or mercy or generosity. They were getting ripped off and it was by their own fellow Jews. Just as we saw last week at Nehemiah, he steps up and he responds to the opposition. We see him do the same thing again here. And his response highlights the seriousness of the issue in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. This is the first time that Nehemiah describes himself as angry. He's livid. And I think it's a divine anger. It's about something that breaks God's heart, like Jesus and his anger when he enters the temple. You see, it was out of concern and love for God's people. And his anger leads to a constructive response in writing this wrong. Verse 7. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his own brother. It's so serious that Nehemiah brings what sounds like official and legal charges against these oppressive Jewish brothers. And we find out here what they're doing. It's not about the act of loaning in itself. It's about earning interest, trying to make a profit, and especially from their own brothers in need. You see, they were acting like loan sharks, instead of being brothers and sisters in God's family. So Nehemiah, he brings all the people together to deal with the matter. Verse 8, And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. You see, Nehemiah makes these people feel how bad the situation is and what they were doing. He says, we've just all come back to Jerusalem after being slaves to the nations ourselves. We know what it feels like. So why are you doing this to your own brothers, profiteering, enslaving, and squeezing your own fellow kinsmen so much, making them being sold into slavery yet again. And this was greeted with silence. The offenders, they knew their guilt. So Nehemiah, he goes on to correct the injustice. 
So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. You see, correction, it starts with the heart walking in fear of our God. You see, injustice, oppression, not loving our brothers, it's not just an action or a behavior. It starts with our hearts. Is it directed towards ourselves? Or is it directed towards God in awesome reverence and fear? Because if God's people don't walk in fear of God, they're just the same as the nations. In fact, they become the laughingstock of the nations, the taunts and jeers of the nations, just like today when Christians and churches don't walk in fear of God and act inappropriately, the world will taunt and joke and highlight and ridicule them. Nehemiah says that in fact he and his household are lending the poor and oppressed money and grain. He's implying that he's doing it the right way in fear of God and without ripping off fellow Jews. And fear of God leads to the call to behavioral correction here. He says, stop profiteering through interest. Return the profits. Return all the interest that's been taken. Verse 12 and 13 show the response of the offenders. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and make them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. As far as we can see here, there is true repentance. The people correct their ways. Prophets, securities, a return to the struggling brothers. And we see a visible image here of God's righteous judgment if these offenders don't follow through on their word. And this scene, this passage finishes totally contrasting the way it started. Remember, it started with a great outcry of oppression, injustice, and division. And the scene ends here. It turns into a great cry of united praise to God. Well, as we keep going, uh, if you remember reading a book or a magazine, uh, in some magazines there's a main body of text, but sometimes there'll be like a box with a heading uh, and an excerpt with an extra or bonus or additional material like a fun fact or a topic. And this is kind of what happens here in this last section. Nehemiah, he has this narrative and he breaks away. He steps away from the events and he gives extra information 
that kind of links with Nehemiah 5, but it's a bit different to it. And it's introduced like this in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. We find out here finally that Nehemiah is actually the governor of Judah, and he's in this role for 12 years. And what's emphasized here in this excerpt, this summary, is Nehemiah's example of generosity as governor. You see, governors in the Persian Empire, they were given a food allowance for their position, but it was food given by taxes laid on their own people, their own brothers. And Nehemiah emphatically says here, I did not take this. And he explains it in the next few verses. Verse 15, there's a bit of bat packing, bat packing here, patting here. Uh, the governors of Judah before Nehemiah, uh, they took from the people for, for their food allowance. But Nehemiah, he didn't do this. He was different from the rest. And he says that this was out of his fear of God. Verse 16, Nehemiah got his hands dirty himself, and he didn't build up his property portfolio. He gave and worked, and he didn't profit from his role. Verse 17 and 18, Nehemiah's governor provided for his people and guests, 150 men at his table every day. Someone says that's about 360 kilograms of food every day. But even in all of this, Nehemiah, he paid for it himself. He used harvest from his own fields. He didn't demand anything more from his people. And he did this because he loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. He didn't want to impose on them, especially during this time of famine and rebuilding the wall. And the chapter finishes with the first of Nehemiah's pleas to God. He says, Remember for my good, O my Lord, all that I have done for this people. Well, as we consider this chapter, Nehemiah 5 for today, uh, we're going to see two things. Uh, the first relates to Nehemiah's example of generosity. And the second relates to how God's people live both then and now. You see, Nehemiah 5, this chapter, it holds up Nehemiah. God uses him as a champion of generosity to the oppressed. He hears their cries. He fights for the poor. He works justice and generosity. And the theme of generosity to the oppressed, it's not unique to Nehemiah. It's a theme that we see all through God's word. God hears the cry of the oppressed. And God shows generosity to those in need. You see, God is a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, whether it be in the exodus from Egypt, in the promised land under unjust kings, in the Psalms, in exile, and even after the exile. And God always responds, fighting for the oppressed, and acting in mercy and generosity 
We see this in Nehemiah. And we also see this ultimately find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see in Luke 4, verse 18 and 19, Jesus quotes Isaiah to say about himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Luke uses this at the start of Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' mission statement. This is how Jesus goes about his ministry. And it's like this to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came to give good news to the lowest of lows, to help the plight of the poor and the broken, to help in a material sense, but ultimately to help in a spiritual sense. He came to proclaim liberty to captives, to give sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. Jesus came to work generosity and mercy to the oppressed, to fight for the plight of the hopeless. And again, both in a physical sense, but ultimately in a spiritual way. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying that the year of Jubilee, every 50 years in the Jewish calendar, where all depths have cleared, where all slaves are set free, a year marked by generosity and mercy, that was coming in for good once for all in the ministry and in the work of Jesus. You see, Jesus is a type of fulfillment of Nehemiah. He's a type of fulfillment in the way of hearing and responding to the cries of the oppressed. Jesus' ministry is one of showing us generosity and mercy. And all of that, it centers ultimately on the cross of Jesus. His death and rising again, generously giving his own life in our place as he died on the cross for sin's punishment. And by doing this, pouring out mercy to sinners, cleansing us, wiping our sins away, showering kindness, giving hope to the hopeless, offering life to a humanity dead in sin, making a way for us hopeless people like us, the lowest of lows, to secure a right relationship with the creator and holy God. You see, the cry of the poor and oppressed in today's passage are answered by God through Nehemiah. And the outcry through all of time of the poor, the oppressed, those in distress, the meek and lowly, the burden, they're answered ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his saving work on the cross, dealing with the greatest oppression that mars all of humanity, sin, the cross of Jesus being God's ultimate show of generosity, God's ultimate work of mercy. And it results in the oppressed lifted up freed from the bondage and hopelessness of sin and generously given 
eternal life, life forever. Maybe this morning finds you crying out to God. You're burdened and in distress. You're under a hopeless weight of oppression and there feels like no end in sight. Remember Jesus, Jesus who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Remember Jesus and run to him. Jesus who's God's answer to the oppressed. Jesus who showers us with generosity and mercy. Jesus who's done away with this oppression ultimately on the cross of Calvary. Jesus and his generosity to the oppressed. We've seen Jesus and Nehemiah's generosity pointing to him. Now we're going to come to the second point. We're going to explore what this passage says about how God's people live both then and now. And as we keep going, there's two strong actions coming out of this passage for us today. The first is Nehemiah's just correction to the oppressors and Nehemiah's own example fueling his mercy and generosity. And both of these are centered around one thing, a fear of God. You see, Nehemiah's evaluation is that this opposition from within, these acts of oppression, the lack of mercy and love was due to an absence of fearing God. You see, to fear means to revere, to humble before, to take seriously, to be shaped by, to walk in response to, to put above anything and everything else. So let me ask you, who or what do you fear today? Who or what do you revere? Who or what do you put above everything else? It's easy to say God, but what does your thoughts and actions say? What's your heart shaped by? What motivates you? What satisfies you? What causes you to tremble? Who or what shapes your living? We all on this side of eternity struggle with a right fear of God. Instead, we tend to take God lightly and we run after things to do with ourselves, like our happiness, our well-being, our success, our satisfaction. We also run after things of the world, like money, pleasures, promotions, and profit. And we'll even sin, reject God, wrong God, and wrong brothers and sisters to make those things happen. Proverbs begins by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of living for God is to fear him, to put God in his rightful place above all else, and then to live in light of him. The New Testament talks about fearing God too. And fearing God in the New Testament, it looks like living for Jesus. 
in Philippians 2 verse 12, after this great confession of the saving work of Jesus who humbled himself even to the point on death on a cross, being raised to the highest place, Paul, he says, work out your own salvation. Live for Jesus and to do it with fear and trembling. Fearing and revering and putting God first because he is awesome and great and holy. How do we live for God? How do we live for Jesus in light of his good news, his generosity and mercy to us sinners? How do we protect ourselves from working oppression, injustice, from ripping off and burdening our fellow followers of Jesus to love them? How do we protect ourselves from sin and division within the Christian community? Well, Nehemiah, well, God's word tells us, fear God. Put him where he belongs. Put him first. And now we come to our second action for God's people, both near and then and now. And the second action is coupled with the first. Fear God and to love one another. In some ways, Nehemiah, he points us to Jesus and the great command with the two actions from today's passage, to love God, to fear him, and to love one another. Remember the unity of Nehemiah chapter 3, two chapters back, the picture of 1 Corinthians 12 and the body of Christ, many members, one body. You see, that only practically works when there's love for one another, when members of the body follow Jesus' command to love one another as Christ has loved us. See, Nehemiah's picture of love and mercy and generosity, giving up his privileges for the sake of others, it really points to Jesus who gave up his privileges for our sake, not counting equality with God something to be grasped, becoming a man, a servant, dying on the cross, and doing all of those things for our sake, for our freedom, for our eternal good. This sacrificial, other person-centered love, this Jesus-shaped love, this love that won our salvation, You see, this sort of love is the antidote against division, oppression, hatred, and mistreatment within the body of Christ. So let me ask you, how's your love for one another today? Do you love the brothers and sisters? How do you show it? Are you interested in them? even to the point of giving up your privileges for their good. Your privileges, your freedoms of comfort, safety, even finances, materials, your time and energy. Would you give them up to lift up a brother or sister in Jesus? 
You see, maybe we aren't lone sharks ripping off our brothers and sisters like Nehemiah 5, but maybe our ignorance of our brothers and sisters, our lack of attention, our lack of initiative or effort, or our lack of generosity and mercy in these ways towards all our brothers and sisters equally breaks God's heart and is a barrier to the unity in Christ that we're meant to display in our local bodies of Christ in the church. So what do we do then? Well, I think the first thing is to go back a step and to reflect on our fear of God. Do you fear God and tremble before him? Putting him first in a manner that results in living for Jesus amongst your brothers and sisters. Then how do we cultivate, how do we cultivate love for one another? How do we do this? How do we cultivate love for one another. Well, my practical suggestion today is to take initiative, to take initiative and to invest in others. Whether it be time, energy, prayers, even material and practical help, spiritual encouragement and challenge. You see, loving fellow followers of Jesus It isn't just brushing shoulders and saying hi to them. It's being generous. It's being loving. It's investing capital, relational capital in them. It's going above and beyond, not for your own gain, but only concerned about their good and the glory of Jesus. Well, as we finish up this morning, I think there's no better way to finish off today than to hear Jesus himself summarize fearing God and loving one another. He says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who hears the cry of the oppressed. You did this ultimately in sending Jesus who on the cross generously and graciously and mercifully offered hope of new life forever to hopeless sinners like us as we look to him and trust in him. Father God, help us to live in light of Jesus, to live in light of your word and your way of life. Lord, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, fearing you first and foremost and loving our fellow followers of Jesus in response. Lord, Empower us by your spirit so that we may do this and live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.